welcome to another Joe Magical Stream. That sounded a lot better when I wrote it in my head. I am your host, Joe Magician, and today we're going to be talking about how strong, again, I bet you thought I couldn't do it, three straight weeks of the Strongs from Fire and Blood and House of the Dragon. That had to be enough. There's no way I could talk about them anymore. Well, that is where you are wrong. Very, very wrong. I found another interesting member of House Strong to talk about, and to boot, he's even in the main books. None of this going back in time, hundreds of years crap. This guy's on the page in the main books. It's just the best. Well, sort of. <laughs> Not really. That's right. This has to do with the winds of winter and beyond. And honestly, it's been a while since I did a stream on like the modern times of Westeros. The character I'm talking about, of course, is the newest member of the Kingsguard for King Tom and the First, the mysterious and silent Sir Robert Strong. Otherwise known as the mountain that rides, Sir Gregor Clegane. Sir Gregor disappeared after his duel with Oberyn Martell, seemingly taken by Kyburn for reasons, and has seemingly reappeared with a new name and a new job. Although he does seem a bit, like, different, there's something off about him. And no one is really sure what's under his massive helmet with his seven rainbow plumes, which, by the way, they should have put in the show. That would have been incredible. <laughs> Uh, and today, we're going to try and answer those questions and see what exactly is being hidden behind the name of Sir Robert Strong. Just before you get going on that, just do some quick promo stuff here. As you may have seen on Twitter or on previous streams, I'm doing a Dying of the Light read-through on Patreon, and that continues. After the stream today, The I'll be releasing for all Maester-level patrons and up Chapter 4 with the esteemed Maester Mary of the Learned Hands podcast. I went up for Archmaesters yesterday. So as soon as this ends, I'm going to be setting that one for all Maesters and up to check out. If you want to get on the Dying of the Light and uh, Patreon train, you can go to patreon.com slash Joe Magician. I also, in the description, I put a link to chapter two with Aziz from History of Westeros. That one is a free preview. You can just check that out, see if you're interested in the content and the many great takes we had in that episode. And as per usual, you know, please slam the MF and like button. <clears throat> that kind of things, just those kind of things really help with the old algorithm and its pernicious ways, <laughs> making sure people see it. So, you know, like, share, subscribe, hit the bell button. I've actually been hearing from quite a few people that they're not getting the notifications. So make sure underneath the channel, like right here, there's a little bell thing. Click on that to allow notifications so that you see them when they go live and the normal stuff. So if we we actually haven't reached it for a little while, let's see if we can do it today. We reach 150 likes, going to throw on my germ hat for the rest of the stream so you guys can enjoy the turtley goodness that comes with that. And at 200, we get to 200 likes. I will throw on my wizard hat for the rest of the stream. I do enjoy honestly wearing them. Thank you guys for hanging out this Saturday. And we're going to talk a little bit more about how strong in like a weird way, not directly. I also wanted to thank, let's see here, there was Super Chats that came through to A. McKay. He said, happy Saturday. Right back at you. A Casey. Oh, Cassie. She sent uh, $14. Oh, that was last week. Just thanking me for talking about Alice Rivers. You're welcome. Also, I wanted to thank all the new patrons that have showed up since the last time I went live. So H.R. Scott, Maester Hunt, Maester Two Rivers, Maester Sir Roger the Night Cook, and as of today, Stonefire89, the novice. Thank you guys for signing up for my Patreon, supporting on the channel and stuff. Yeah, YouTube notifications are historically bad. It does not send them out. Actually, the only way to get push notifications, this is a super weird, complicated thing you have to go through. You not only have to select them on for 
the channel you want, but you have to do it in the app itself on your phone. You have to go in and allow push notifications before you even send them. It's a whole thing. It's really annoying. I wish they did it a different way, but that is not the world we live in. Maybe I'll do like a newsletter or something in the future so I can send out like emails so that people actually see them. Or I'll follow in Brendan Beefish's esteemed steps and get myself a sub stack. That would be something. What we're going to be talking about today is obviously a Robert Strong, the, the fake false knight Robert Strong. I got an opening quote here. I actually find him like weirdly fascinating, much more than I find Gregor Clegane himself fascinating. And I think it's the way that George frames it. I think you can kind of read it here. This is from the Dance of Dragons epilogue. Quote goes, we do not know even if he's alive. Marin Trant claimed that Strong took neither food nor drink. And Boros Blunt went so far as to say he's never even seen the man use the privy. Why should he? Dead man do not shit. Kevin Lancer had a strong suspicion of just who this Sir Robert really was beneath that gleaming white armor. Suspicion that Mace Tyrell and Randall Tarley no doubt shared. Whatever the face hidden behind Strong's helm, it must remain hidden for now. The silent giant was his niece's only hope, and pray that he is as formidable as he appears. That's a pretty good introduction. Well, he, he is introduced in the Cersei chapter, but for kind of George kind of priming you for being excited about what's going to happen with a character as horrible as Robert Strong, it's, it's hard to do a little bit better than that. Set up as the hope of Cersei and the, uh, the instrument of her revenge. That is a... T oh, I also... So... <clears throat> Sorry, I forgot. Ramona Zanfir, she sent 10 pounds early on. Thank you again, Ramona. She's got a question coming up, as she normally does. Appreciate it. The Night of the Dead, yeah. Actually, that's a question from Guilty Undertaker later on. He wondered about the meaning of the undead knight himself. So before we get into like what he is exactly, I thought it'd be instructive to go through like his sudden sudden appearance. How is he introduced, reintroduced into the narrative, basically? Because he shows up almost as a brand new character, more or less. It's I think it's hard to make the to make the argument that there's much in common anymore with Robert Strong and Gregor Clegane, Gregor Clegane much more than even someone like Lady Stoneheart to Catelyn Tully. Seems a very, very different people at this point. So Robert Strong appears while Cersei is imprisoned by the Faith of the Seven for her many, many sins. Uh, she is informed that there will be a trial by combat for her freedom. Her uncle Kevin is allowed to meet with Cersei to give her quite a lot of bad news. And among the other bad news is that Sir Aerys Oakhart has died in Dorne, leaving a spot on the Kingsguard open. Cersei realizes that her time and come her time has come and that if she has any hope of surviving this, uh, she has to get some help. And she tells Kevin to inform Kyburn that it's time to unleash the beast, more or less. I got the whole quote here. There's actually a lot of good quotes about this, but this is just a Cersei telling Kevin. So it says, she did not have a ready answer. My champion will need a new name as well as a new face. Kyburn will know. Trust him in this. You and I have our differences, uncle, but for blood we share and love you bore my father and for Tommen's sake, for the sake of his poor maimed sister, do as I ask. Go to Lord Kyburn on my behalf. Bring him a white cloak and tell him the time has come. That is really ominous. <laughs> tell Kyburn the time has come. Uh oh, uh oh, uh oh, uh oh. No, 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 no. At least the headaches of Gregor were solved by Kyburn. Well, uh, I'm not so sure about that one. I don't think Kyburn solves anything. So who exactly is this champion that's being called for? Well, in A Feast for Crows, the subject is first raised 
when it seems that Sir Loris Tyrell may die during the Siege of Dragonstone and that they're planning ahead that they may have an open spot on the Kingsguard. And this time, for unknown reasons, I don't know why Cersei wants this. She wants somebody that will be loyal and an effective member of the Kingsguard instead of the bozo she's been putting on there lately. What a concept, asking for a member of the Kingsguard to be good at their job. It's wild shit. So Kyburn responds to the inquiry. He says, alas, no, said Kyburn. I had another sort of champion of mine. What he lacks in gallantry, he will make up. What he lacks in gallantry, he will give you tenfold in devotion. He will protect your son, kill your enemies, and keep your secrets, and no living man will be able to withstand him. So you say, words are wind. When the hour is ripe, you may produce this paragon of yours, and we will see if he is all you have promised. They will sing of him, I swear it. Lord Kyburn's eyes crinkled in amusement. Might I ask about the armor? I have placed your order. The armorer thinks I am mad. He assures me that no man is strong enough to move and fight in the weight, in the weight of such plate. Cersei gave the chainless maester a withering look. So it seems quite clear that that here in A Feast for Crows and that later at her cells in A Dance with Dragons, that Cersei is not in the dark about exactly who this champion is. She made the order for, you know, the massive armor that could fit nobody else that's living. Well, about that one. And that they're, they're kind of, I don't know why they're playing coy. It must be just George trying to hide the reveal from you before it shows up. But they they both definitely know who the champion is that they're talking. Oh, uh, thank you for the super chat. Michael James has Kyburn. Oh, thank you for the $5. Has Kyburn alluded to experimenting with magic? He sure has. He talks about dark magic quite a lot, but also kind of mysteries of the body. There's a lot of necromancer, dark magic sort of stuff swirling around Kyburn. And in a sense, I mean, we're going to get to this later. There's a sense that George is leaving it up to you, the audience, to decide, you know, which way you feel about how Kyburn does what he does. It's quite clear from the order and the way they're talking that both Cersei and Kyburn are on the same page that this is somehow Sir Robert, I mean, Sir Gregor Clegane that has amazingly not died from the from the wounds he has had and this fits in a weird way with other parts of the story so for instance there is another character that who has disappeared into the dungeons of westeros and emerged with their identity and their name stripped from them and given a new one and somebody that's been essentially bound in service afterwards and that is of course theon Greyjoy. his transformation from theon to reek comes to mind here especially as we know that ramsey tortured and mutilated Theon to create the character we know as Reek, transforming the previously headstrong Prince of the Iron Islands into a mutilated obedient servant. I don't think that's a, a comparison that maybe too many people would come to, like Theon Greyjoy and Gregor, Gregor Clegane, but it's within these same books that the same thing is happening here. It kind of also draws connections between Ramsay and Kyburn in... Maybe not their outward behavior, but definitely the sadistic nature of the two guys. It's also perhaps a little bit of foreshadowing because, you know, Theon does not remain Reek, that he eventually reclaims his name, that he reclaims his identity. So that's something to think about. A little little bit of spice there for the future of Gregor Clegane. So after these conversations and after Cersei essentially says, unleash Robert Strong or just the monster at this point, Sir Robert finally arrives on the page. He's been, I think the last time. Gregor actually was in the story, like doing something was for Oberyn's trial. And after that, he has basically disappeared into the dungeons. So Cersei is forced by the High Sparrow to do a walk of atonement from Baylor Sept back to the Red Creep before her trial. It's essentially like her bail or her price of freedom. 
They're essentially trying to humble her before the trial by combat. When she arrives at the Red Keep, she has obviously been stripped naked and forced to do the whole walk. People were jeering, throwing stuff at her. She's about ready to essentially fall over and pass out. And the enormous champion arrives. I got the quote here. This is actually a really good one. So I just I put the whole thing in. A shadow fell across them both, blotting out the sun. The queen felt cold steel slide beneath her. A pair of great armored arms lifting her off the ground, lifting her up in the air as easily as she had lifted Joffrey when he was still a babe. A giant, thought Cersei, dizzy as he carried her with great strides towards the gatehouse. She had heard that giants could still be found in the godless wild beyond the wall. That is just a tale. Am I dreaming? No, her savior was real. Eight feet tall, or maybe taller, with legs as thick around as trees, he had a chest worthy of a plow horse and shoulders that would not disgrace an ox. His armor was, pay- was plate steel, enameled white and bright as a maiden's hopes and worn over gilded mail. A great helm hit his, hit his face. From its crest streamed seven silken plumes and the rainbow colors of the faith. A pair of golden seven-pointed stars claps- clasped, <laughs> clasped his billowing cloak at his shoulders. A white cloak. Sir Kevin had kept his bargain, had kept his part of the bargain. Tommen, her precious little boy, had named her champion to the king's guard. Cersei never saw where Kyburn came from, but suddenly he was there beside them, scrambling to keep up with her champion's long strides. Your grace, he said, it is so good to have you back. May I have the honor of presenting our newest member of the king's guard? This is Sir Robert Strong. Sir Robert? Cersei whispered as they entered the gates. If it please your grace, Sir Robert has taken a holy vow of silence. Kyburn said he has sworn that he not speak until all of his grace's enemies are dead and evil has been driven from the realm. Yes, thought Cersei Lannister. Oh, yes. That is quite an intro to Sir Robert Strong. He almost enters the story as a heroic figure. He definitely is in Cersei's eyes and especially the way that he's being dressed and presented here. This is kind of a classic George feint or subversion and one that really works well in undercutting expectations. You know, I think in a lot of stories, a giant champion in gleaming white armor that shows up to save this wayward queen and pick her up in a protective way and walk her back in the castle, you know, acting as her shield against the rest of the realm, that would be a pretty, yeah, that would be a kind of character you expect to do heroic things. And yet underneath the the packaging, I guess, of Sir Robert Strong, there's a darkness and a monster waiting to come. Michael Berry says, isn't it weird that Robert Strong had so much faith imagery when his big moment will most likely be fighting the faith? It's a good point you make and what I'm about to talk about. And I think the way that Kyburn is specifically dressing Sir Robert is intriguing because not only is he wearing, obviously, the enameled white armor of the Kingsguard, but he's literally being draped in the signs of the Faith of Seven. I mean, he's got the rainbow plumes from his helm representing, obviously, the rainbow of the Faith. He's got seven pointed stars on his chest. Uh, he almost looks to be like some kind of weird fusion of like the rainbow guard of Renly, the King's Guard, and the warrior's son. I think it's supposed to set him apart to make him unique, you know, even among the King's Guard, that he is something different. And I wonder if it's almost like meant as a joke, a dark joke at the expense of the Faith of the Seven by Kyburn. That he has made this monster from deep within the dungeons from one of probably the most horrible person in Westeros in the entire story. And instead he comes out and the guy is dressed like like a paladin, a paladin of the faith, like its greatest champion of all. I actually had a thought that this might be sort of like there's an infamous line out there that it's 
it's not really attributed correctly to anyone that that who it's supposed to be. But the the quote goes, when fascism comes to America, it will be wrapped in the flag and carrying a cross. Well, I think Gregor, in a way, is sort of like that. You know, the doom of the faith is coming and it's a guy that is wrapped up in all their symbols and all their and made to look like the best of them, that kind of thing. Yeah, a good point, Gregory's Tim, that it is like the stranger championing the faith. Exactly. It's it's a trick, basically. One to one to keep in mind, especially that uh, with the the way that Kyburn seems to have a particular love of tweaking the nose of the establishments within Westeros, especially well, the Citadel, but surely. And when we're talking about the likely downfall of the faith of the up in the upcoming book, not the Winds of Winter, of course, it'll be titled Cersei Strikes Back. This will likely be carried out not only by maybe some kind of giant explosion like in the show, but it's also very likely to be carried out by the massive shoulders of Robert Strong, despite being dressed like a warrior's son. Yeah, again, on the dark joke thing, it's it's kind of a reflection of how Kyburn and Cersei sort of feel about the Faith of Seven and the High Sparrow, that they clothe themselves in, you know, rainbows and white and crystals, and they try and look to act so pure, but, you know, deep inside of them, there's the corruption and the evil of the High Sparrow, and it's sort of a, a reflection back on them, but also maybe one back on Cersei, because Cersei instantly connects with Robert Strong and feels um, quite close to him and probably will be in the upcoming book. And in a meta sense, probably not one intended by Kyburn, but this could be sort of externalization of Cersei's character that that she at this point in the book, she is one of the most revenge obsessed and hateful characters in all of A Song of Ice and Fire, who has been delighting in torture and killing and suffering of her enemies. But she still looks like Cersei Lannister. And in that way, you can see like the <laughs> you can see it almost as like the packaging of the monster, the uh, the wolf in sheep's clothing kind of thing with both of them and i also sort of thought about it it's like is robert strong kind of like what cersei wishes she could be i mean there's definitely a sense in her chapters that she is annoyed that she can't be like jamie that she has to rely on other people it's like if you could give all of cersei's worst impulses like if you could pull them out of there and make them to a person you know robert strong probably wouldn't be far off Morningstar was God's favorite. Oh, my God. Hey, Micah Clark. Yeah, I, I saw your theory. We'll get to that later. Yeah, holy shit. There's not going to be there's going to be nothing good coming from Sir Robert Strong. And I definitely think, like I said, that's a that's a subversion of his introduction that somebody that is the <laughs> the savior of Cersei and her champion should really make you nervous about what exactly he's going to get up to. Right, question from Sarah Severnan. What fantasy books do I recommend? Well, this is a bit off, but what other ones should you read? Uh, you should read The Witcher. The Witcher's really good. I also enjoyed a Silent Earth series. I think that's what it's called by. No, that's not what it's called. It's I got that wrong. The Fifth Seven by N.K. Jemison. You could also pick up ooh, what other ones are like. I also like Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. I'm actually not a big fan of Brandon Sanderson. I didn't really like them. Neil Gaiman makes really good stuff. American Gods is a great fantasy book. Yeah, those are a lot of them, but those are just off the top of my head and ones that I read recently. The Witcher stuff is also very good. Broken Earth. I'm sorry. Yes, a good call, Max. There's also a fair amount of Mager the Cruel in Robert Strong here, and that a lot of people suggest that perhaps Magor was undead when he awoke suddenly from his coma to fight, that, that, especially with the fact that he could no, he could not have any children. 
It would be kind of interesting if Magor actually was a fire white or something like that, especially with uh, Tyana of the Tower pulling the strings behind him. That's a really good introduction to, to Robert Strong, and it really contrasts, interestingly, against the Gregor Clegane we know. The, these two characters, other than the way that Kyburn is talking about them, seem uh, kind of like a polar opposite. It's actually a trick that George loves doing. Like, for instance, I remember, uh, what was it? I saw a reaction video years ago where people who knew nothing about Game of Thrones were being shown clips of it. And they were asked to give their impression of characters based on nothing other than the way they looked. And without fail, pretty much all of them said that the the Lannisters looked like the heroes based on the way that Jamie, I mean, that Nikolai Coster Waldo and God, what's and Lena Headey based on the costuming and the way they looked. And it's actually quite the opposite that Jamie is, if anything, a, a morally great character leaning towards villain and Cersei's quite clearly a villain by a dance with dragons. So kind of an interesting subversion there. Uh, Sanderson. Yeah, I just didn't I didn't like the way it kings. I didn't like the way it, re it read. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. It just wasn't my test. Clicane, but we're going to get to Kool-Aid Bowl. Don't you worry. That, that will be coming uh, later in a little bit. Did any knight have a chance to stop Sir Gregor in the story? Well, Oberyn. Oberyn killed him. Basically, he killed him, except for, you know, that he got cocky and that he was demanding Gregor say Elia's name. Plenty of people had a chance to kill Gregor. I mean, maybe you need another Oberyn, but it can totally be done. He's not invincible. He's just massive. It's actually, that's something I'm going to talk about later. But if you read the Knight of the Seven Kingdoms and the Duncan Egg stories, Dunk is actually a pretty poor, like, uh, swordsman. In a classical sense, he basically only wins every time by being huge and strong and using like street fight tactics. But in terms of like sword play and being able to beat people one on one, he actually does a pretty poor job. <laughs> That's one thing that you definitely should keep in mind that um, Robert Strong and Sir Gregor are definitely not unbeatable, especially if you get him in a one one scenario, which spoiler may be happening. So what actually happened here to Sir Gregor? This is a this is a point of contention within the Phantom and quite a big one because it's left so vague. And I, I just want to get this out of the way. It's not a theory or really up for up for debate that it is actually Sir Gregor Clegane, you know, the mountain that rides that is hiding under Sir Robert Strong's armor. There's no one else in the kingdoms that is that big and that strong. There's nobody that could pretend to be him. And I think it, you're meant to understand when he shows up that like, oh, shit especially with the, the quotes I'm going to get to in a little bit about Kyburn and Cersei talking about him. So Lady Nim, Nymeria Sand, also suggests this in the Watcher chapter. She says, if Sir Gregor, if Gregor Clegane is alive, sooner or late, the truth will out. The man was eight feet tall. There is not another like him in all of Westeros. If any such appears again, Cersei Lannister will be exposed as a liar before all the Seven Kingdoms. She would be an utter fool to risk that. What could she hope to gain? So that's George essentially winking at you, the reader, going like, hey, keep your keep your eyes out for when another eight foot massive guy shows up because it's going to be Gregor. And then all and then the next book who shows up an eight foot guy in massive armor. Spoiler alert. That is Gregor Clegane or used to be Gregor Clegane. It's a little unclear. Um, Barris Aurelius doesn't Kevin think outright that is Gregor. He, he not directly, but it's pretty well hinted that. He's aware that it's Gregor and so is everyone else in the small council. But I don't think they say it by name. They just kind of dance around it. So how did we go from Gregor Clegane being stabbed and poisoned by Oberyn Martell to Robert Strong? Like, what the hell happened here? This is actually a question from uh, the patron Slack. Nicole R. She said, how do you think Kyburn resurrected the mountain 
and what of his head? Did Cersei send a dwarf's head to Dorne or does Sir Robert have Rob's head, as some people think? So we're just going to go ahead and break these down a little bit at a time. So when we first when we last saw the mountain, as I said, he was in dire straits. Uh, the quote here is, well, G- well, Gregor is paying for it now. Grandmaster Pycelle was tending to the man's wounds, but the howls heard ringing from the maester's chambers suggested that the healing was going not going as well as it might. The flesh mortifies and the wounds ooze pus, Pycelle told the council. Even maggots will not touch such foulness. His convulsions are so violent that I have to gag him to prevent him from biting off his tongue. I have cut away as much tissue as I dare and treated the rot with boiling wine and bread mold to no avail. The veins in his arm are turning black. When I leached him, all the leeches died. My lords, I must know what malignant substance Prince Oberon used on his spear, let us detain these other Dornishmen until they are more forthcoming. Gregor is not in a great place after Oberyn's uh, duel with him. Oberyn ensured that even if he couldn't kill Oberyn with his spear, that somehow he loses the duel to the eight foot tall monster that one way or another he's dying. And he apparently used a unknown special poison, which if you may remember from a uh, backstory on Oberyn, he actually went to the Citadel and forge most of a maester's chain before he left so he's quite apparently a prodigy with doing mixing and, and um, making up new poisons a guilty undertaker says was gregor just in pain from his injuries or was kyburn torturing well this is when he's under picel's care gregor is freaking out under picel's care so i doubt picel was torturing him this seems to be just whatever Oberon used on him some kind of strange poison it's suggested it was manticore venom but Pycel says that, no, it can't be Manticore Venom. It would have already killed him. And there's a discussion that maybe Gregor's so big that this is what Manticore Venom does to somebody that is a gigantic size or something like that. You know, sort of like the idea that diseases that cross over from like one animal to another usually has very, very different, very different effects based on the size of what they're in. It's essentially making the case that Gregor is so huge that he's basically another species and that you can't say that manticore then would do this to him so it's kind of suggested that oberon made up something special that this was kind of a new thing which i wouldn't i think would be perfectly in line with oberon's character the quote here from kyburn kyburn ignored the mockery in her voice he is dying of the venom but slowly in exquisite agony my efforts to ease his pain have proved as fruitile as fruitless as Pycelle's. sir gregor is overly accustomed to the poppy i fear his squire tells me that he's plagued by blinding headaches and oft quaffs the milk of the poppy as lesser men quaff ale. Be that as it may, his veins have turned black from head to heel, his water is clouded with pus, and the venom has eaten a hole in his side as large as my fist. It is a wonder that the man is still alive, if truth be told. Pycelle is an idiot, but Kyburn backs him up here, saying that whatever's going on is beyond what anything else he can hit he has experienced that there's something unusual happening to the mountain. I use a coagulant to slow it down. Yeah, whatever it is, there was (laughs) quite clearly Oberon made something special. So the dialogue goes on and it says, your grace at Kyburn, mayhaps I might move Sir Gregor to the dungeons. His screams will not disturb you there. Awesome stuff, Kyburn. I'll be able to tend to him more freely. Tend to him, she laughed. Let Sir Illyn tend to him. If that is your grace's wish, Kyburn said, but this poison, it would be useful to know more about it, would it not? Send a knight to slay a knight and an archer to kill an archer, the small folk often say, to combat the black arts. He did not finish 
He did not finish the thought, but only smiled. The conversation goes on. Cersei suddenly goes, hey, why did you get kicked out of the Citadel again? Like, what did you do? And this is Kyburn's terrifying response. The Archmaesters are all craven at heart. The gray sheep, Marwyn calls them. I was as skilled a healer as Ebros, but aspired to surpass him. For hundreds of years, the men's of the Citadel have opened the bodies of the dead to study the nature of life. I wish to understand the nature of death, so I opened the bodies of the living. For that crime, the gray sheep shame me and force me into exile. But I understand the nature of life and death better than any man in Old Town. Do you? That intrigued her. Very well, the mountain is yours. Do what you will with him, but confine your studies to the black cells. When he dies, bring me his head. My father promised it to Dorn. Prince Duran would no doubt prefer to kill Gregor himself. We all must suffer disappointments in this life. Very good, your grace. Kyburn cleared his throat. I am not so well provided as Pycel, however. I must needs equip myself with certain... I shall instruct Lord Giles to provide you with gold sufficient for your needs. Buy yourself some new robes as well. You look as though you've wandered up from Flea Bottom. She studied his eyes, wondering how far she dared trust this one. Need I say that it will go ill for you if any word of your labors should pass beyond these walls. So Kyburn essentially makes the argument that he should be allowed to take the mountain down into the black cells to experiment on him. He's making the case that the reason is that the poison, whatever it is, is so effective that, hey, maybe we should know what it is and figure it out so that we can use it on our enemies. But I don't think that's really what's going on here. Kyburn makes the um, answering Cersei's question about how he liked to study the living and life and death is quite clearly he's going to experiment on uh, Gregor and he has no intention of trying to save his life, return him to as he was, that he's going to take the opportunity with an outrageously huge specimen like Gregor Kogan. He's telling half-truths. I very much doubt the Macers had an issue with him opening up the living. They might have. Like, if if Kyburn was, like, abducting people to vivisect them while they're alive, yeah, that could probably get him kicked out of the Citadel. I don't have, uh, I don't have any doubt that if he was actually, like, capturing people to cut them open, that would be enough to get you kicked. It's, it's quite clear that, yeah, he's not really going to try and figure out where this poison is. Maybe he will, but that's not really the thing here. Also, the idea that he's going to take him down to the black cells to do whatever he wants and that he needs specialized equipment. Well, what could he actually need that he couldn't take from high cell stores or from his own? It's, this is very much, at this point, mad scientist shit, I think is the way to say it. I think that's, I, that's intentional. Many in the past have made the connections between a Kyburn and Victor, Victor Frankenstein from Mary Shelley's story. That you're supposed to read this and go like, oh shit, this is like the start of Frankenstein's monster or something like that. But there's also... A couple other illusions being made here that, that we should keep in mind. So from Frankenstein, Victor Frankenstein reanimates his monster through quote unquote scientific principles. It's been adapted in later versions of it that he used like lightning or something. But it's not it, it's not an important part of Frankenstein how he made his monster. It was just that he reanimated somehow this eight foot tall monster cobbled apart from different bits that was meant to be quite beautiful, but upon resurrection was quite twisted and horrific, had like yellow eyes and pus coming out of it. But it was also this is something that's very different from what we're seeing here from Gregor Clegane and Sir Robert Strong. It's that the monster from Frankenstein is intelligent, actually very intelligent, that if you, if you read the in the course of that book, he actually learns how to talk. He learns how to read. He outsmarts his creator. In the end, he ends up tricking him to his own death. Spoiler alert for a book 
from like 1818 or something like that. But yeah, that's very different from what we see here. But there is definitely an element of revenge of the monster against its creator. Two other allusions that I'm pretty sure George is making here is from H.P. Lovecraft. The two ones that come to mind are Herbert West Reanimator and the, oh God, what's the other one? Uh, the Curious Case of Dexter Ward. In both of those cases, both of those books, essentially what you have is mad scientists in a very in a very on the nose way that discover essentially like poisons, poison or potions or like they're called essential salts or something like that. I'm not really sure what Lovecraft was getting at. The important thing is that they discovered some way of putting substances into bodies, into corpses and having them reanimate. And actually, in both of those stories, uh, similar kind of things happen during Frankenstein, where eventually the, the their creations turn on them more or less <laughs> yeah i guess pycelle does have one move yeah he just throws uh milk of the poppy at everything although that's that's actually true if we go back and read it he actually tried quite a few things none of them worked but he did try them yeah go back to reread frankenstein it's actually quite interesting only part of it is from victor's perspective most of it's from the monster's perspective i believe don't be ridiculous george would never borrow from lovecraft yeah totally he would never borrow Bar never borrow anything from Lovecraft. I mean, he only borrows the fish monsters and that kind of shit. No, 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 no. He never borrows the mad scientist and weird creations of science. That that is not definitely not a thing he writes about constantly. Oh, wait. Yes, he does. Let's continue down into the black cells and and talk a little bit more about what's actually going down on here. Uh, so these illusions and Kyburn's requests and inferences, I think, make the case that Martin is having Kyburn do make his own versions of these like fictionalized monsters. It's George's version of them, especially because, but in, in a little bit of a different way, because we learn that Kyburn is experimenting not on the dead, but the living. So a quote here, this is about, these are some truly horrifying quotes, the kind of things that normally you can only bring up on Halloween, but here we go. Cersei did not like to think about that. The girl had come with her unsuspecting, thinking that she was along to serve and pour. Even with Kyburn clapped the chain around her, her wrist, she had not seemed to understand. The memory still made the queen queasy. The cells were bitter cold. Even the, tortures, even the torches shivered. And that foul thing screaming in the darkness. Yes, you may take a woman, too, if it pleases you. But first, I will have names. So Kyburn has essentially been abducting people with Cersei's consent in order to experiment on them. The other name character that other than some puppeteers that disappear is Lady Felice Stokeworth. And this is Cersei asking about what happened to Lady Felice. This is not great. Then she sent for Kyburn. Is Lady Felice still alive? Alive? Yes. Perhaps not entirely comfortable. Alas, said Kyburn, I fear that Lady Felice is no longer capable of ruling Stokeworth or indeed eating herself. I have learned a great deal from her, and I am pleased to say, but the lessons have not been entirely without cost. I hope I have not exceeded your grace's instructions. He's doing more than just like opening up the body or like ex <sighs> he's doing terrible, horrible medical experimentation on the living from the women that he's captured, including Lady Felice Stokeworth. From from what we see here and from his description of what he's done to Lady Felice, it seems quite queer that what Kyburn is doing is probably experimenting with their brains and maybe like vivisections and maybe maybe opening up their skulls like perhaps he like literally perhaps he's cutting up their heads open and removing parts of them 
giving them lobotomies or something like that. If you're not sure what a lobotomy is, it's a medical procedure that used to be done quite a lot. It was an idea that you would puncture the brain through the behind the eyeball. Originally, it was done with an ice pick. This is a real thing. I'm not making this up. And you would essentially sever part of the brain in order to cure people of psychological and neurological problems. Of course, the definition of psychological and neurological problems used to be quite different. This is the sort of thing that they would do to, to anyone without, what's the right way of saying this? Societally normative behavior. Yeah. And there are procedures where people would literally take out parts of the brain. They would sever nerves. The stories of the experimentation around these things are pretty horrific. But the outcome is, I think, what's important here. Because what lobotomies actually did in many cases was the person who received them became just a total shadow of themselves. Oftentimes, patients would die from the procedures. Many would have severe brain damage and be totally unable to function. More often than not, they were much worse off than when they started. Some people who didn't have quite as bad reactions to having a pick puncture their brain in a particular way. They would write memoirs and things and they described it as having that something was taken from them, that they have like a missing part of their soul, that um, some part of them is just gone. And again, some part of what we see here from Lady Felice, the idea that whatever Kybert's done to her has rendered her unable to feed herself and that she's unable to do anything, basically, is is a possible side effect of having somebody do a lobotomy. Of course, this would be well before it should have showed up. Lobotomies are relatively recent. But, you know, George is doing fantasy stuff. So maybe he had the idea that Kyburn thought that maybe if you monkey around with people's brains, you can get them to do whatever you want. Maybe to create like an empty shell of a person you could order around. Yeah, there's there's bad stories about what happened to people. One particular patient, all she did all day was she would fit, she would take a coffee pot and then fill up a cup and then pour it back and just do it over and over and over again. That's what they did after. That's what she did after the procedure was done on her. So I wouldn't be surprised that that's what George is imagining here. I don't know how else you would render Lady Felice incapable of feeding herself a ruling Stokeworth unless there's like he's like chopped off her arms or something like that. It seems pretty clear that he's monkeying around with her brain. Yeah, that's true. Laura Sevenan, President Kennedy's sister, is another famous person that received these medical procedures. Essentially, the idea was you you would destroy part of their brain to get rid of the part that was causing them to misbehave in whatever way you were trying to get them to stop. Not a good idea. It's outlawed pretty much everywhere. Not a thing that's done anymore. Sam Rixine says, doesn't a lobotomy uh, sever connections in the brain prefrontal cortex? I believe that's what, act what it actually does. There's different kinds of them and there's different names for them over time because unsurprisingly, doctors were really excited about this cool thing they could do to fix people. It depends on which one, but some were done that way. Some were literally removing parts of the brain. It depends on who and where this was happening. But the basic idea is you you injure the brain in a way that affects behavior. Oh, yeah, like Hannibal Lecter in the which movie is that? The the one with Julianne Moore. He basically does that to an FBI agent. It's a real thing. So I would not be surprised if that's what George is drawing on here. But here's the thing. If that's what Kyburn did to Felice and then if he did that to Gregor Clegane, because Elise's whole whatever he did to her comes before Robert showing up, then that can't that cannot be all that Kyburn did to him because Robert Strong doesn't act like a living person anymore. The quote goes, tell me, sir, where did this man come from? demanded Mace Tyrell. 
Why have we never heard his name before? He does not speak. He will not show his face. He is never seen without his armor. Do we know for certainty he's even a knight? We do not know if he's alive. This is from Kevin's thoughts. Marin Trant claimed that Strong took neither food nor drink, and Boros Blunt went so far as to say he had never seen the man use the privy. Why should he? Dead man do not shit. Kevin Lannister had a strong suspicion of just who this Sir Robert really was beneath that gleaming white armor, a suspicion that Mace Tyrell and Randall Tarley no doubt shared. Whatever the face hidden behind Strong's helm, it must remain hidden for now. A silent giant was his niece's only hope, and pray that he was formidable as he appears. So he doesn't speak. He never removes his armor or his helmet. He doesn't use the pretty, aka he doesn't go to the bathroom. He doesn't eat or drink. He probably doesn't sleep. So it's suffice to say that you can't lobotomize somebody and turn them into a fire white. That's that's not the that's not the effect of it. So you, in order for for Robert Strong to essentially be acting like a fire white, Kyburn had to do something else other than monkey with his brain. Although it seems quite clear that he did because, I mean, Gregor was relatively he sort of did what Tywin said before, but this is at a new level. He's following orders in a way that seems almost robotic. So I would guess that. One part of it is that he messed around with Gregor's Gregor's brain, but the other part of it is somehow he turned him into and in what seems to be undead. Yeah, yeah, Max. Uh, Kevin does know that Robert is an undead or some undead Gregor, and he's like, oh yeah, okay. I mean, the, that sucks, but we need him right now. So I think this is where the references to like Frankenstein and Dexter Ward and Herbert West uh, may provide the other part of this equation. In those stories, as I said, the mad scientists essentially used unknown methods, to say the least, of resurrection that kind of came down to like putting potions, Frankenstein, it's just scientific principles, again, something called like essential salts. It, it doesn't matter because the authors didn't elaborate because it's impossible. So it does. It's fictional. It doesn't really matter what the method was. But what's clear is they developed some way of doing it. They could put something into a dead body and have it come back to life. And it's certainly possible that that's what George is doing here, that Kyburn in his travels and studies has stumbled upon some version of how to do this. I mean, there's no explanation for how Wes, Dexter Ward and Frank and Victor Frankenstein came upon the ability to resurrect people. I don't think we're ever really going to get one with Kyburn. And I don't honestly, I don't really think it matters too much. The idea is this, that he managed to do it. but. If we're talking about like what was actually done to him. So in all ways, Robert seems like a fire white, you know, Barrick reports feeling much the same way that uh, he does not need to do things biologically anymore. Like he doesn't need to sleep. He doesn't need to eat, doesn't need to drink anything. George has echoed this in interviews where he said, yeah, basically Barrick Dondarian is undead, that he's basically a zombie at this point. So this raises the possibility that Gregor is something new, that he's what's been dubbed a science white rather than a fire white or an ice white, that maybe he's like a third type of undeath or something like that. Although we should raise the possibility that since we know that Rolor has the ability to bring people back from the dead, I don't think you can discount the idea that he found a way to use Roloric magic. But I think the idea that he used some kind of weird potions or magic Oh, yeah, like a magic potion or something like that to bring back Gregor makes the most sense. I was like scouring <laughs> my knowledge of the Song of Ice and Fire. I was trying to think of like, what could this be if there is like some sort of substance? What what would it be that, that George has alluded to? 
And the one that I came across that might be a hint to it is actually from an unusual place, the Unsullied and their Wine of Courage. Oh, five dollars from uh, San Rixian. Thank you, Mallory. Team Science White. Yeah, Team Brain Explosion and Team Science White. We're having a real good time. So the quote here is the wine of courage was the answer he gave her. It is no true wine at all, but made from deadly nightshade, blood fly, blood fly larva, black lotus root and many secret things. They drink it with every meal from the day they are cut and each passing year feel less and less. It makes them fearless in battle, nor can they be tortured. Tell the savage her secrets are safe with the unsullied. She may set them to guard her councils and even her bedchamber and never a warrior as they might overhear. So I'm wondering if George is imagining that it's like Kyburn has stumbled on like a special formulation of the wine of courage or took that as a starting point and added to it or made it more distilled. And somehow that's how he made uh, Robert Strong. After all, he was running with the Brave Companions, so he would have been all over Essos, most likely. So I don't think it's unimaginable that Kyburn came across these kind of things, experimented and came up with his own formulation. This is the one that just sounds the closest. Like if you look at the other weird substances, you have Shea the Evening. That does create whites in the sense that you end up with the blue. But that takes quite a long time. Maybe if Gregor shows up and he has blue lips, well, it will be some kind of like super concentrated version of that. But this would be my guess of how he did it, how he brought him back to life. Team no lobotomies, that's a good one too. No lobotomies, they're not a good thing. Oh, you didn't think of any cool Sir Robert Strong questions to submit? Hey, there's still time. Maybe he like mixed the wine of courage with the warlock's wine and that's what he gave Gregor to bring him back to life or to essentially, yeah, he's undead, so that must be it. If there's an explanation, that's my bet. Although one thing we can't rule out because this is a song of ice and fire that Kyburn may have discovered maybe some way of mimicking ice whites you know the others can do it maybe somebody else can too or maybe this is something like the children of the forest like from the show where it was the shard of obsidian in the chest that turned benjen and the night king into whatever they are maybe there's obsidian shoved in gregor's chest i honestly think that those are pretty unlikely i mean he does mention dark magic but i think that's more in the sense that he's trying to play up the idea to cersei that there's good reason to study Gregor other than, the me- other than messing around with his brain. And the other thing to keep in mind is that, you know, they did study necromancy at the Citadel for quite a long time. And undeath is just a fact of this world. So the idea that there's multiple ways to get to the same thing does make a bit of sense. And, you know, the Citadel forbids it, not because it's impossible, because it's a bad idea. So I would not count that out, that there's some other there's other methods of creating the undead than whatever the children, the others, and the uh, reloric magic can do. <laughs> it's out, shove obsidian in it. Gross. Oh, good point from Micah Clark. If we, were, if we were to reach really far, we could assume that Kyburn, who knew Marwin, who went to a shy, who probably knows that shade in the evening is, could have gotten the shade from that threat, definitely. His connection to Marwin is definitely an idea that he may have had access during his time in the Citadel to exotic substances to say the least and especially his time during the brave companion so that would be my guess a guilty undertaking you also see drogo turn into a living shell maybe kyburn did something similar to miri mazdor there is a little bit of a difference there robert comes back i mean gregor comes back as robert strong and he's able to function whereas drogo is not although that seems to be revenge by miri so i don't know a good question kraken queen about how does kyburn make zombie mountain follows we'll get to that in a in a second but so this is kind of my tier list of how kyburn made sir robert strong 
that he has some kind of magic potion. Doesn't really matter what it is, but it exists that allows him to resurrect people and that he also maybe given him a lobotomy or some kind of brain procedure in order to make him submissive. Second down, maybe some kind of reloric resurrection. I don't know. There's not really any reason to think this. Like there's not a red priest running around that Kyburn's in contact with that would make this obvious. But, you know, it is a way to do it. Maybe he discovered some way of creating like the others whites. And last on the list is like whatever happened to cold hands. But since we don't know what that is, it's hard to say. It's basically just like another question mark around Sir Robert Strong. OK, where was I? OK, so let's get to the head question you guys are talking about in the chat, because this is a very popular topic of discussion for Robert Strong. And that is what head is underneath the helmet that Sir Robert Strong wears? Is it Gregor Gaines or is it nothing or is it somebody else's? The reason being that in A Feast for Crows, a giant skull is sent with Sir Balon's swan to the Martells to appease them for Elia's murder. They essentially say, here, Gregor has died. Here's his skull. High five. We're going to bump on this. Look, Gregor's dead. You got your revenge. Is everything cool? That's the deal that Tywin made with uh, Prince Duran. So that leads to the question. Since we know Robert Strong is Gregor Clegane, then what's ex- what exactly is going on? How can the head be in two places at once? It can't be, right? Well, the mainstream theory is that the one that I tend to agree with is that the head that was sent to Dorne was actually not Robert, was actually not Gregor Clegane's head. But instead, it was one of the many dwarf heads that have been cut off and delivered to Cersei and Kyburn because they put a bounty on delivering Tyrion back to them dead or alive. I think you get a lordship if, and like a mountain of gold for doing it. Um, so we see within A Feast for Crows that multiple times people show up with sacks of heads of dwarf heads for Cersei and Kyburn. And they're actually just like getting annoyed at how many they have. They're like, these aren't Tyrion. I know they're not Tyrion. So the suggestion being that maybe they took advantage of one of these skulls being delivered to them and they sent it in Gregor's place. And in fact, if you go back and read the the chapter where the skull shows up, the Dornish themselves go like, how do we even know this is Gregor Clegane? How do we know this is the mountains? So this is from Obara Sand. She says, what did the mountain look like? How do we know that it is him? They could have dipped his head in tar. Why strip it to the bone? Very good questions, Obara. Very, very insightful. And it's also for you, the reader, to go like, yeah, why did they do this? And then we see from Ario Hota's perspective, he says he allowed himself a brief glance at the skull. The skull rested on a bed of black felt grinning. All skulls grin, but this one seemed happier than most and bigger. The captain of the guards had never seen a larger skull. Its brow shelf was thick and heavy, its jaw massive. The bones shone in the candlelight, white as Sir Balon's cloak. Yeah, what a luxury problem. Just too many heads being delivered to you. God, what am I going to do with all these heads? Ugh, just Cersei things. So the thing that people tend to key in on here, and this is obviously not, this is not original by any mean. Like this is a well-trod idea within the fandom. But the thick and heavy brow is a trait that we see in particular George use with, with his dwarf characters, in particular Penny. Penny, who meets Tyrion in Philantis, she herself has the same kind of enlarged head. She has this big, thick, heavy brow. And like, so it's quite possible that among these heads that people are sending to Kyburn and Cersei, that this is one of them. And that they essentially, they knew that 
if they dipped it in tar, somebody might recognize Gregor and go, that's not Gregor. That who the hell is that? So they stripped it of the flesh in order to be able to send a skull, knowing that you can't tell what a face looked like from the skull to essentially conceal their deception. I think that's probably what happened here. Maybe Kyburn did it without Cersei's knowledge. Maybe he told Cersei that was Gregor's head, but I wouldn't be shocked at all that this is what happened. Um, there's tons of characters doubting it. There's other physical connections to uh, the way that George writes his dwarf characters. So that would be my guess. Yeah, maybe Penny's brother. But also, like I said, Cersei and Kyburn get delivered, what, four skulls, four heads within those chapters. So who knows how many other others they got? I'm guessing it's one of them. And that Gregor Clegane, Sir Robert Strong, still has his own head attached, that it was never removed, that they kept it on there. Oh, good call. Uh, Just B says, in real life, modern example, football players who have skull damage can have their brows bruised and they are more protruding. Absolutely. Kunski says dwarves heads only big on dwarf bodies. I'm assuming that what's going on here is that they are being sent every weird head they can find, every misshapen one. And that's essentially what they found here. You know, that's that's the one I tend to believe that underneath Robert Strong's helm is still Gregor Cagain's head, but it's become like twisted and monstrous, kind of like uh, Frankenstein, Frankenstein's monster, that the helmet is not meant to conceal the fact that he has somebody else's head. It's just that his the head that's still on there is like disgusting. And as uh, Kyburn said, like, like the veins were turning black while well, these veins all throughout your head and your neck it would be gross to look at they're trying to pass off robert strong as a normal human you can't do that with the way he looks other possibilities that people tend to bring up there's actually been quite a few in the chat you guys have brought them up that it actually was gregor clegane's skull that got sent down to dorn and to replace it he just essentially found another head sewed it onto Gregor's shoulders and then used his necromancy to reanimate both. So the theories tend to focus in on two base, two key details. One of them is if a character is literally named Robert or some version of it, or if it's somebody that is dead and possibly could have their head removed. The most popular one is that Kyburn removed Robert Baratheon's head from its corpse and placed it onto the mountain's body. They would have access to Robert Baratheon's body. I believe it would have been buried in Baylor's sept with the other kids, other kings. Um, the idea being that they exhumed his body, they put it on Gregor Cagain's shoulders, and that the big reveal of it will be that at some point the helmet um, will come off and it will be Robert's head, and it will be like a big, a big, like a big shocking moment, like oh, it's Robert Baratheon's head. And then it will be the meaning behind it might be like, oh well, the Robert who is abusive and a king in life has been turned into this undead monster by Cersei as like a revenge thing. I, I don't I don't tend to believe that one. I don't believe any of the other ones. As I said, I go for it's still his head, but it's basically based around the idea that his name is Robert. So people go Robert, Robert. There's no real reason to think that he has had his body exhumed and his head cut off. Like, I think it's just a fan theory. Another one is that it's Rob Stark being the Robert and that his head was actually delivered to Kyburn, who then sewed it onto the body of Gregor Clegane for unknown reasons. I'm gonna be a bit of a buzzkill right here. I tend to find this one and most of the suggestions of whose head it's going to be a bit like um, just sort of filling in the blank sort of thing where essentially you're just going down the list of who's been beheaded. Could that be the, the head underneath the helmet? I guess so. I mean, if George wants to write it, he could, they're available. I definitely don't think it's Rob Stark's head. I did that whole thing in my video talking about Rob Stark's return and there's no indication that the body and his head has ever left the twins. Joffrey asked for it, but the letter never got sent. So Walter Frey 
and the phrase probably still have his head. What's the same for the rest of them? There's suggestions it's Joffrey or that it's Ned's skull and they sent back a fake skull to the north. Septa, what's her name? Unella? No, not Unella. Septa, Mordain. Basically anybody that died under in King's Landing could be on Robert <laughs> Strong's shoulders. That's the kind of thing that happens with some theories where there's a mystery. So people sort of go down and plug in every possibility and see which ones might be right. I think that's kind of what happened here. Yeah, I yeah, I tend to go back to the idea that it is actually Gregor Cagain's head. It just looks disgusting, kind of like they did in the show. I thought that, though, before we got the reveal that it was actually Gregor's gross head under there. I thought that's ever since I read these chapters, I was like, oh, it's probably just his head. It just looks disgusting. Look at the um, look at the descriptions of what he looks like before he went into the dungeons. He doesn't look good now. You have to hide his appearance because He's an undead monster and it might get them killed by other people. You know, it's not a good thing. Ah, Max, you bring up the thing I was just about to talk about. Headless Gregor. This is the other uh, possible idea. So I think this one's absolutely the least likely possibility that there is no head underneath the helmet. That's essentially just like, I don't know, nailed on there or something like that. We know that within the Song of Ice and Fire, there's nothing stopping disembodied body parts from moving. We've obviously seen that happen with Ice Whites. And the hand that Sir Alistair Thorne brought back to King's Landing was still moving for quite a long time. But the thing here is that Robert Strong responds to verbal commands and he can see what he's doing. It's not like he's, you know, walking into walls or falling down stairs or essentially moving around like somebody that's unaware of his of his surroundings. He can obviously see and hear. So there is a head under there. The quote that uh, people tend to go to for headless, headless, uh, headless. Gregor Clegane is from it's from a Game of Thrones brand three. So this was four books earlier. This is a vision of Sandor, Jamie and Gregor. And this is the one of Gregor over them loomed a giant armor made of stone. But when he opened his visor, there was nothing inside but darkness and thick black blood. So people have taken this literally and suggested that maybe Bran was seeing the future, that there is no head under there. That is essentially just like a gaping wound on top of his shoulders. Again, I don't think that's what's going on. I think that's maybe more metaphorical. The idea that whatever Gregor is now, whatever Robert Strong is, is like an empty vessel that Kyburn has essentially used his potions or whatever and his monk and his screwing around people's brains to essentially create an undead golem, essentially. But that is the suggestion. That's the other theory. So you're going to go ahead and rank them. Actually, you know what? They put up a thing with polls. I'm going to create a poll. Hang on a second. See if this works. Don't freeze on me. Oh no, it's freezing. This is good. Oh, here we go. What's under this? This really does not. Wow, this is just okay. I'm trying to make a poll. It's just not working. Nope, we're not going to do this because it's not working. Play another time when the technology is working. But okay, so let's do this in the chat. Let's see here. So press one if you think that it is Gregor Clegane's head still attached to his shoulders. Hit two if you think it's somebody else's head, and hit three if you think it is. He's truly headless. That is, there's nothing underneath that helmet. That is essentially just shoulders and neck. There's no head there. One for Gregor's, two for somebody else's, three for none. What they do to Lamy's head? Oh my god. Yeah, anybody's head. Oh, a super chat here from Signy, a fifty DKK. Thank you so much. Which head did Cersei send to Dorne? I think it was a dwarf head. It doesn't. I don't really know which one. It could have been any of the four that she received, but I tend to think that's what it is. Okay, so most people are on board. Oh, wait, some twos going in there. I'd one three. Now, you people that are saying that it's somebody else's head, 
do you really think that or is that what you want it to be? Because I think it's it's fairly well described in the text that it's just that it's probably just a dwarf head or some other weird head that got sent. It does, I don't really know. That seems to be the thing that people are delivering odd shaped heads to Cersei. OK, two represents anything, anybody's head that's not Gregor's. Three is literally no head. Mostly ones, it looks like. OK, that's kind of what I thought. So I think that's a the other problem I have with the idea that he's like actually headless is that I don't know how Robert Strong would be able to perform his duties as a Kingsguard, which he's doing if he doesn't have a head unless Kyburn's like literally psychic. He would have to be like the others controlling him in the same way to make it happen. I don't think I don't think Kyburn has like others powers. I think it's yeah, I think that there's a head under there. So one thing we wanted to get to here, and this is actually a question that I got from a gray waste Tim on Patreon. He asked, why do you think George went to name Robert specifically? Does it have something to do with providing a Cersei the protection and security that her husband, King Bobby B, failed to give her? So we're going to get into the whole naming thing of naming him Robert Strong. So why? Well, it's not just George. Why did Kyburn name him that? He could have chosen any name. I think that is sort of it's meant as a gift to Cersei that uh, Kyburn was thinking about, well, you had a bad relationship with Robert. He treated you terribly. What if I instead give you this? the literal opposite of your dead husband somebody that will only do what you say someone that will only that will never harm you that will protect you in the way he never did i think that's probably what kyburn was going for but i find the i don't see another reason to name him robert like it's it's too on the nose yeah robert strong's a battle droid there you go but i find the last name the strong part the reason this is part of this whole thing so why why name him strong from george and kyburn's perspective I think it's intriguing, like first theory sense that George chose how strong to be the disguise that Kyburn chose for the zombie mountain. I mean, it's especially since the Strongs only entered the books in A Feast for Crows from Lucamore the Lusty. That's their first reference in all the books. They don't show up in Duncan Egg. They don't show up in, in any of the previous four books. They, they only start showing up in A Feast for Crows with the Aris Oakheart and Jamie thinking about Lucamore the Lusty. So what's going on here? Why is George not only making Robert a strong, but why are they showing up in the way they are? Like, for instance, the rest of House Strong, we don't know of any other name members like Laris, Lionel, and Harwin. They don't show up until two years after Dance of Dragons is published with the Princess and the Queen. So what's going on here? Why, why, why is there like this rising tide of House Strong within the narrative, especially within the current one? Like, for instance, Two more members of House Strong show up in the Golden Company, although it's a little dubious if they actually are. There is Duncan Strong and Dennis Strong. They are both sergeants within the Golden Company who both claim to be members of the House. But of course, if you believe Amanda's theory and the one I subscribe to that Duncan the Tall is a secret member of House Strong, well, he was introduced in all three novellas already and in A Storm of Swords before the publication of A Feast for Crows with the Dance of Dragons. And then, uh, you know, I've I've talked about this before that about how the Strong's introduction in, and into the story and Dunk's seems to happen at the same time where he was thinking about he dreamed up Dunk and then he dreamed up how strong at the same time and then starts writing about both of them in, in an ever increasing way. <laughs> oh, thank you for the super chat. 25 PLN from Quack Cracking Queen. Thank you so much. Great stream as always. Thank you for the amazing content. No, thank you. Also, guys, make sure you slam that like button. 150 likes. I put on a silly hat and everyone likes silly hats. So this is something that a Crow Foods daughter, Amanda, noticed as well when she wrote her post for Westeros.org years ago when she was detailing how 
she thinks uh, Dunk is a, is a member of House Strong. Part of the reason that this works is that from the very beginning, what we learn about the Strongs is has to do with uncertain origins and false identity. So like, for instance, the two guys in the Golden Company, it's inferred and hinted at pretty, pretty, pretty strongly that you can be in the Golden Company and claim whoever you want. Nobody's checking like lineages and patents of nobility or whatever. You can just claim to be whatever house you want over an Essos. Uh, that happens all the time. So it's certainly possible that maybe Duncan and Dennis Strong are long lost scions of the house, descending all the way back to Luca Moore's bastards, or these are two guys whose ancestors escaped aim in one eye. But it's also definitely on the table that they are not. They're just claiming to be an ancient warrior house because they think it's cool. That could be totally a thing. And it's the same thing here for Robert Strong. There's no living members of the house to say whether or not he's actually a member of the Strong House. There's nobody to contradict it, but it's also it's framed as a false identity. And then we learn about Lucamore Strong and we learn that he essentially just shot bastards out into the world like a shotgun blast. So what we're knowing about the family is that, like I said, it's un a, a key characteristic of them is uncertain identity and questioning who is who, who and who is not a member of them. They're almost set up as like a puzzle box, basically. It's like George just fired them all across the story and said, see if you can recognize members of this house from these little details and from these hints from other places. Like, for instance, the Brienne Duncan the Tall thing comes from the shield that Brienne has in her armory. Amanda has a lot of other good reasons for why she thinks Dunk is a strong, but it's the same thing throughout. Strength of 20 Danny DeVitos. Uh, did somebody donate $50 earlier? No, uh, somebody donated 50 DKK. Not really sure what that is. For some reason, when my thing pops up over here, it doesn't put in the period. So it just looks like a whole bunch of numbers. Unless I missed something. Hang on a second. I'm gonna check PayPal real fast. Nope, nothing over there. So this is a key part of their their construction in the story. There, There's mystery around them. And you know, given how Strong's legacy of creating a tremendous amount of children and bastard children this this whole thing that's going on with robert strong and duncan and dennis could be representative of the family throughout history danish kroner okay i do not know currencies so it could be it's very possible that all throughout history the main line of the strongs has died out multiple times but perhaps there's been quite a few giant warriors named rivers over the years who after the main families wiped out they said I'm a bastard of that family. I'm a strong now. And people around them are like, yeah, sure, man, whatever. And that may be part of why Kyburn chose Robert Strong to be a strong in particular. That the disguise is representative of the history of the family, more or less. Who's going to argue with them, basically? And when you look at when you look at Breakbones, you look at Lucamore, you look at Lionel Strong, you look at Dunk, all of them do share this kind of massive frame and immense strength. That's it seems to be a family trait. So it may be kind of like the Lannister's gold hair. It's the way of recognizing them. Although obviously not all of them. Um, Lair's strong is much smaller. Alice Rivers is in no way a giant herself. But it seems to be kind of the um, the way these guys operate. Or at least like a sort of like a genetic trade for them. And it may be that over time, like there's no co there's not like a straight line genetic lineage going back. Massive guys just claim to be as strong. And it's just like, yeah, sure. Maybe. Yeah, Brienne too. Brienne is incredibly tall. She's incredibly strong, has that warrior nature to her. Even though she trained quite a lot, she obviously took to it quite quickly. And this is part of the reason that Amanda and I honestly really enjoy looking for secret strongs in the narrative. As I said, they are introduced as having questions of identity 
and that they have lots of bastards sent out into the world and George seems to have fun placing them for you to try and figure it out. So speaking of that, talking about Secret Strongs, if you haven't read Amanda's original post on westeros.org, she does actually go on to speculate is House Clegane an out an offshoot of not only maybe Duncan the Tall, but perhaps House Strong themselves. And actually, this is uh, from the Slack room of Zamfir. She said, characters like this, presuming he is Clegane, makes one think George should have put a condom on Dunk from time to time. But I guess they lacked his size in Castle Rock. And that's sort of getting to the point of like, well, maybe this isn't actually a disguise. Maybe Gregory Clegane is being disguised as a strong in the same way that Brienne wears Dunk's shield. It's meant to signify that, yes, he actually is a member of this family, just far removed and nobody remembers it anymore. It'd be kind of a pretty clever thing to do. It's like, well, you look at maybe it's just it makes practical sense for Kyburn, but from a meta sense, maybe it's meant to be literally true that he's dressed as a strong because he is one. So if you look at the history of House Clegane, they are actually a very, very recent house. Uh, they started as the kennel masters for the Lannisters of Casterly Rock. Uh, Sander Clegane told this to Sansa when he was drunk. He said, I like dogs better than knights. My father was kennel master at the rock. One autumn year, no, my father's father, I'm sorry. One autumn year, Lord Tidos came between a lioness and her prey. The lioness didn't give a shit that she was Lannister's own sigil. Bitch torn to my lord's horse and would have, and would have done the same for my lord too. But my grandfather came up with the hounds. Three of his dogs died running her off. My grandfather lost a leg. So Lannister paid him for it with lands and a tower house and took his sons to Squire. The three dogs on our banner are the three that died in the yellow of autumn grass. <laughs> yeah, sorry, father's father. This was grandfather. So the suggestion here is that perhaps these kennel masters of Casterly Rock are somehow bastard children of Duncan the Tall and perhaps Rohane Weber. After all, later in her life, after the swarm stored where she marries Eustace Osgrey, well, Eustace dies. Rohane instead then goes and marries Lord Gerald Lannister, Lord of Casterly Rock, and has four sons. You have Tytos, Jason, Tyon, and Tywald. Fun connection there that uh, Jamie is related to Rohane and Brienne is related to Dunk. Maybe they both are. But anyway, however, in 240 AC... Lady Rohane disappears, never to be seen again. There's quite a lot of speculation that she was murdered, that Lord Gerald for some reason killed her, but she definitely does just straight up disappear. Yeah, Sandor is a chatty drunk. So perhaps Rohane in the intermediate years when Duncan the Tall is running around the Seven Kingdoms and raising in popularity, maybe they meet up again and she has a secret child, maybe a bastard of Duncan the Tall. And perhaps this happened before she married Gerald. And brought the kid with her to court and used her influence to get him a job. Perhaps this secret child, potential secret child of Duncan Rohane, became kennel master. That would certainly be a way to take care of the boy while also fitting in with the history of the Cleganes. And it's certainly the size of the Clegane family that screams Duncan the Tall, who himself was a massive six foot and eleven inches. Now that's a foot shorter than Gregor, but Sandor's about the same size. And again, it's a primary theme within the Clegane brothers storyline that the idea of being a true knight and being a false knight, it's it's inherent in both of them. They are both pretty much the the standard bearers of that idea. For instance, when you look at Gregor Clegane, well, he's an actual knight anointed by 
uh, Rhaegar Targaryen, but he acts like a brute, a murderer. He's like one of the worst people in the world, but he's a knight. And Sandor, who is, refuses to be a knight because Gregor is one, essentially acts like they more or less should, except in you know some cases. Sorry, a uh, little kid that he cut in half. So the so those that theme that subjects and is so central to Duncan at all is literally personified by Gregor and Sandor. And obviously, notably with the other known descendant of Duncan the Tall, Brienne of Tarth, and Jamie Lannister, who is Rohane Weber's descendant as well. You know, these these are not proofs, though. I mean, not every tall person in Westeros who struggles with the ideas of knighthood is related to Dunk. Like it could just be thematic similarities because George loves doing those sort of things. But I wouldn't count this out as a possibility that based on their immense size and the history of the house that seems to line up with being created while Rohane Webb was around in the area. And we know Duncan Rohane uh, probably got down. I think it's certainly a possibility, just not a strong one. It's more crackpot tinfoil. Micah is very divided about it. Yeah. Sorry, Micah. But there's also some other small similarities that make sense. Like, for instance, there's a member of House Strong known as Harwin, also known as Breakbones. Harwin Strong's behavior in melee sounds very much like Gregor Clegane, that he would enter the melees even though he didn't have to, and he would use his massive, massive size and strength to essentially go around injuring, purposely injuring uh, all of his opponents, that he was actually trying to kill them. And that seems very reminiscent of Gregor's behavior at the tourneys. Now, we know that Gregor never actually entered the melees. He only entered the jousts. But you can imagine if he decided to enter a melee, he would probably do the same shit that Harwin used to do. There's also the suggestion that Harwin was a not cool guy because of his behavior in the gold cloaks. So there may be kind of a personality uh, thing between them. But, you know, I, I recognize the Cleganes being related to Dunk and or the Strongs is... It's fairly tinfoil. There's not a lot, a lot of direct evidence for it, but I think it's one of the more likely ones to consider, especially with just how similar the, the character arcs that you have between Brienne, Sandor, and Dunk. All three of them struggle with the idea of being a true knight and what that means and trying to fighting against society in a way. Meanwhile, they have these, they're falling around, being followed around by these uh, squires, more or less, that know more about them. Like, there's a thematic resonance between Dunk to Egg, to Sandor to Arya, to Brienne to Podrick. It's it's not hard to see how those are similar. So, <laughs> so that's my that's my tinfoil. Well, actually, it's Amanda's tinfoil, but I thought it was relatively believable among the other ones. Nowhere near that Dunk and Brienne are related, but I think it, I think you could, if George wanted to, he could write that in pretty easily and fill in those blanks. Is Duncan a reference to Duncan Idaho? It could be. George is a big fan of Dune, so I wouldn't be surprised if that's why he decided to name Dunk that. Does Dunk have giant's blood? Everyone seems to think so. So let's go on to, we've kind of jumped off from the whole how strong, secret strong idea that, you know, maybe Robert Strong's name is meant to be a clue in a sense. Actually, if they are, if he actually is related to the Strongs, then him being disguised as one would probably be the biggest clue. It's like it's directly on the page. He pretends to be a member of the house. So well, let's go to the winds of winter. And of course, Clegane Bowl. Get hype. So what's going to happen now? So we end with Dance of Dragons with uh, Kevin Lannister is dead. Cersei's basically back in charge. She has Robert Strong on her side. 
And what's coming up for? Well, the trial by combat's still going to happen. And one thing that seems for certain is that probably like in the show, Robert Strong is going to be an obedient monster for Cersei, carrying out whatever dirty work she wants around King's Landing. I don't think they made that part up. I think he's going to go around doing awful, awful, awful stuff uh, for her. I mean, the ending quote is basically Cersei going like, yes, yes, he's going to go out and do awful things for me to kill all of her enemies. <laughs> I do need an air horn drop. Ah, I should have gotten one for this. And if you're looking for what he's going to do in the future, well, before Gregor was turned into a hulking undead monstrosity, he was already known for being a mass murderer. He probably killed his parents. I think he also killed his sister. He's known for torture. He's known for rape and just about every crime you can imagine Gregor Clegane did before he was turned into Robert Strong. So now he he didn't have any reason not to do things before, but now he's essentially going to be like a video game character for Cersei, where she's going to be directing him to what other awful sort of things she wants done to people around King's Landing. Yes, Michael Clark has one awful thing for him to do. I did put that one in the notes. Yeah, he killed his wives, everyone at Cookie and Keep. He wasn't good before. This is going to be even worse. Although I'm guessing one thing that won't happen in the books that happened in the show is that they had Robert Strong essentially going around, sneaking up behind people and like smashing their head into walls. Like in the books, he is so huge and he is so and especially the way he's dressed, he's not sneaking up on anybody. So I doubt that's going to happen. I bet he's going to be used more in the intimidation way, like when Lancel showed up and he essentially just beat the shit out of some of the members of the Warrior Sons, that he's going to be intimidation and a symbol of Cersei's rising power in King's Landing. So, for instance, at the at the end of A Dance with Dragons, as I said, Kevin Lannister has been murdered, as has Pycelle by Varys and his little birds. So the only people left on the small council at this point that are physically there are Mace Tyrell, Randall Tarly, and Kyburn. A Paxter Redwine is off with his fleet. Harris Swift is in Bravos. Jamie's in the Riverlands. Obviously, Kevin's dead. So she's probably going to step in as regent again, for, use Robert to essentially force her way back into being queen regent, taking it back over from Kevin. And I would not be surprised if she uses her, if she uses Robert Strong essentially as the fist that makes essentially makes her rule King's Landing from inside the Red Keep. Like he can't do much out in the field, essentially. He's one guy. But within the Red Keep, within the small council chamber, he can just throw somebody out a window. He can cut them in half. He can rip their heads off if he feels like it. He's probably just going to be there enforcing everything she wants at her side. Yes, minus 10 stealth plus 10. No, plus 50 intimidation. No stealth. No stealth for Robert Strong. So I also wouldn't be shocked if Cersei ends up using Sir Gregor to aid her in her uh, Tyrell problem that she seems so keen to solve. Show had them essentially, she blew up Baylor's Sept with Marjorie inside for Loras's and Cersei's trial, which are going to be going on like one after another. But we know that's not going to happen in the books, at least the trial part, because she's getting what? A trial by combat. That's the whole reason she has Robert Strong. So if she wants to blow up something, I'm not even sure where she would do it. Marjorie's going to get a trial. Maybe she'll do it there. But one thing that was kind of missing was that Cersei essentially ran away and let it blow up and got everybody inside and nobody came to get her. I wouldn't be shocked if instead that that she uses Robert Strong and maybe some other Lannister soldiers to essentially hold everybody inside or throw them inside somewhere. 
and anybody that escapes that he'll probably send her to he'll pro she will probably send him to go around and kill anybody they also sidestep the trial by combat in the show by having Tommen become friends with the high sparrow that's not going to happen in the books Tommen is literally only eight years old he has no relationship with the high sparrow he has no relationship with the faith so that part is definitely not happening so it seems very likely that the trial by combat will go forwards but they may change it maybe a trial by seven is a possibility so i would expect to actually see robert have to fight somebody but maybe there's some sort of double cross some sort of revenge is going to happen here and it's not going to be any good you don't create a character like robert strong and not have him cut people in half and rip them to shreds. Chances zombie Gregor bashing Fagon's head against the wall pretty high. He seems ready made to actually that would be pretty brutal if he actually went ahead and got them smashed another Fagon's head against the wall. God damn, that would be something he would do, wouldn't it? Uh, but yeah, I think trial by seven is likely that after they realize Robert Strong is and who he is, they're going to be like, all right, well, we got to essentially even the odds. We'll get seven champions. And of course, this is where Clegane Bowl is speculated to happen. Obviously, at the trial, at the tourney of the hand early in a Game of Thrones, Sandor and Gregor come to blows and they fight. They essentially get ordered to stop. I, actually, I forget that happens in the books. It definitely happens in the show. But um, the suggestion is that Sandor is still alive and he's also like uh, Gregor. He's wearing a disguise. He's the gravedigger on the Quiet Isle. And they're going to get him out of the faith of the seven is going to go. Listen, Sandor, we need you to come back for one last fight. Come down and fight your brother. You need to you need to do it for, for reasons. And then Sandor will agree and he's going to show up and then it's going to be Kogane Bowl and they're going to fight. It's going to be amazing. Well, there's a few problems with that. For one thing, we learned that Sandor is, still has a pretty bad injury. It happens in the books, too. OK, good. I just wanted to make sure sometimes you get those you get the show and the book mixed up in your head and you're like, fuck, which one's this actually from? I hope it's from what I mean. Sandor is still recovering from his injuries from when Arya left him to die. He definitely I think he has a big limp at this point. And he also the, the dialogue with the elder brother of the Quiet Isle essentially makes the case that Sandor no longer feels the same hate for Gregor that he did in life. Um, I mean, he's talking about Sandor as if he dies, as if he's dead, not literally standing over there digging a grave. But that's essentially the idea that Sandor has uh, gotten a lot of perspective on his life and no longer wants to kill his brother. I don't know why this would happen. Like, in order for Kogane Bowl to happen this way, in between the end of the Dance with Dragons and whenever the trial by combat happens, the High Sparrow would have to become aware that Sandor Clegane is alive, that he's on the Quiet Isle, that he'll do it, and that this is a good idea despite his injuries. So, I don't know. I don't think, if there's a Clegane Bowl, I don't think it will happen in the trial by combat. If they meet up and fight each other, it might happen later in the books, because I don't think Robert Strong's going to die in whatever this combat is. He's too clearly set up to... His, his fate is linked to Cersei. As long as she's still going, so will... as long Yeah, as long as she's still a character alive and doing things, it seems like Robert Strong will be around. But I think there's something that's undersold when you talk about Gregor Clegane, because when you talk about his future and the Winds of Winter, a lot of people go Clegane Bowl and then stop. But as I was talking about the idea of like Frankenstein's monster and Herbert West and what's that other guy's name? I totally forget the other character, Dexter Ward. In each of those stories the monsters eventually turn on their masters. Literally, the story of Frankenstein is the creature is created 
and then spends the rest of the book trying to get revenge on his creator for making him. Same thing happens to Herbert West. Same thing happens to Dexter Ward. There's other necromancer stories within Lovecraft and obviously within the world of fiction. But it's very common for the creature to eventually turn on its master. So I think that might end up being what's going to happen with Robert Strong as the Winds Winner progresses, that at some point, some part of whatever's left in his head is going to wake up again. They sort of did a version of that in the show where they had upon seeing Sandor, Gregor was overcome with rage and they had the fight and they tumbled to death off the tower. But I think it will be more direct that that Gregor's like going to wake up or he's going to get tired of obeying Kyburn and Cersei and maybe get revenge on them, maybe go on a killing spree within the Red Keep. Maybe he goes wild when the wall falls, could call Micah. You know, there should be there should be something along those lines as George is so clearly cribbing from those things. It will be his own version. And I, I won't I'm not going to write out the possibility that Gregor and Sandor eventually interact again. So much of Sandor's plot line is wrapped up in his life being the opposite of Gregor's, that he's trying to be what his brother is not. So it would be kind of weird to introduce him back in the story and not have the two meet up. But if you're talking about literally Clegane Bowl, get hype at the child by combat for Cersei, I don't think that's going to be the one. It could very much be later, though. Yeah, good call, Guilty Undertaker. Imagine uh, Cersei's POV. She orders Robert Strong to do something. He doesn't. What happens next? Yeah, they're, her, Cersei and Kyburn are both relying really heavily on the fact that Robert Strong really is a subservient monster that will do whatever they said forever. Like, what guarantees is there of that? Do they even know what they created? I mean, the literal story of creating the undead within uh, A Song of Ice and Fire is like these magical creations rebelling against their masters. That happens almost every time. So it would it would be surprising if Robert Strong remained an obedient, essentially murder robot for the rest of the story. He should have some kind of actions of his own, some sort of rebellion. He should have some ending to his story, which will probably involve, you know, as I said, maybe going on a killing spree, maybe going after Kyburn and Cersei, the fall of King's Landing when Aegon arrives. That would make a lot of sense. Oh, yes. And Micah Clark left a comment on my announcement thing on YouTube of what terrible things in particular he thinks Cersei's going to do. Uh, this is his Lolly Stokeworth theory. So here's how it goes. That after Cersei regains power, probably after Mace dies, Robert Strong may kill him. She sends Robert Strong after Bronn. After all, Bronn is quite a thorn in the side of Cersei and a feast for crows and a dance with dragons. Bronn either leaves or dies fighting on Gregor. I'd lean towards the former, but either way, if on Gregor goes there, then Lolly's in the baby get Elia and Aegon treatment. Micah, that is a horrible, horrible possibility. I hope I don't read it, but it certainly is creative. I think it is right on the money that Cersei is going to be using Robert Strong to essentially uh, settle all family business, that he's going to be like a one man end of the Godfather. He's going around. He's basically immortal. Can't stop him. He's just he doesn't care about himself. He doesn't care about his future. He's just going to go around and just start killing people, getting revenge in the worst ways. George is going to use this imagination of everything that he's had Gregor done, but turned up even higher. The idea that he kills and or I guess rapes Lollies to death and kills her baby, uh, baby Tyrion. Actually, isn't that the name? Isn't the name baby Tyrion? That one seems a little bit on the nose. Pretty sure. Hang on. Let me look this up. Pretty sure Bronze kid is named Tyrion. Or is that a show thing? 
Oh, I'm getting them mixed up again. No, that's a show thing. Damn it. That would have been so good. If, she, if, if the baby's name Tyrion in the books, that would be on the nose. But yeah, it, it should really be much like uh, Micah is laying out here. Cersei enacting the full width of her revenge and cruelty using Robert Strong as the tool to do it. That's a book thing. Oh, yeah. If it's named Tyrion, Cersei's 100% sending Robert Strong to kill that kid. This is going to be like top of her list. Tyrion Tanner in the books. OK. And, you know, this is actually something that Guilty Undertaker brought up. He had a question about sort of the thematics of Sir Robert Strong. And it's that he said, we have a coming invasion of the dead from the north with the others and their whites and some spans effectively that Euron is playing the resurrected dead from his coming battle with the Red Wine fleet to attack Old Town. Is Robert Strong a one off or is Kyburn playing to make his own army of the dead? If this is like a potion or something, if if Kyburn has figured out how to do this, yeah, there's really nothing stopping him from making more Ungregors, making more Robert Strongs out there, an entire army of his own undead. Although it may have to do with maybe like a unique interaction between the poison of Oberyn and whatever he did. But I think it's certainly possible that this is not the last. I don't think this this he's probably going to be trying to make more. I think it's this question of how many corpses he has and whatever the method was, if he can replicate it. But I think this sort of gets at a, a larger point that I don't think the creation of Robert Strong is just like a plot point. I don't think it's just the idea that he wanted Gregor to stick around, that that Gregor, that Sir Robert Strong is essentially a a massive liability in their in their midst that he is this undead monster that at any point could just decide to turn around and start ripping off heads and ripping people in half and cutting them down with his sword and they're all just sort of acting like oh it's no big deal he's under control nothing to worry about well doesn't that sound quite a bit how the people of king's landing and most of westeros is treating the others that Robert is like the giant elephant in the room, as are the others to the larger story. As we saw, even Kevin is aware of it. And he's just like, well, maybe I can use this to my advantage. That's that's really not a great thing to be doing. And I think it works on a larger plot thematic level for as the other invasion progresses. I would imagine that George will time that up with whatever Robert Strong's future is. If like as the as I think who was it in the chat? Somebody said earlier up that if the wall comes down, maybe Robert Strong goes nuts. I wouldn't be shocked if George correlates those two actions. That oh, it isn't bronze. It isn't bronze child. Oh, okay. Oh, that must have been from the from the riots. Oh yeah, that makes sense now. I don't think you're on the wrong track though, Micah. Like thinking of creative, horrible things to do to characters is what George does. That's like most of his books. He really delights in finding unusual and creative ways to make them pay. So you're probably right on the money. It says if the poison does have something to do with the undead state he's in, he does end up turning on Cersei and company. That could be Oberyn's final revenge. Great point. Yeah, that could be it. If, if they lose control as he gets closer and closer to death. And that is sort of another weird thing that's going on with Gregor. Like what is going on with that poison? Is that like a ticking clock on him? Will it eventually kill him completely? Um, not really sure. Bronze steps on. Okay, that makes sense. Let's see here. So I only have a little bit of time left. I have I have to do stuff after this for once. I can't just sit in my chair and watch Radio Westeros and decompress. So if you guys have anything that I missed, anything that you want to ask me, you know, fire away. Hit me with your best shot at me, bro. And I'll tr I'm gonna scroll up and see if I missed any. Oh, thank you for the five dollar super chat and the number one Sheba Aaron. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Yeah, there's a storm. There's a hurricane that's gonna hit where I live in the next. 
24 hours. So we have to get ready for that. I, I do think in a larger sense that you should be use, viewing Robert Strong as a symbol in King's Landing of the rising threat of the others. The longer he's there and the more Cersei gets him to do things, the more he's going to probably get closer to being out of control and it becoming a threat that they thought that there was no problem. Like, I think there's a, a big parallel we made between the way people of Westeros treat the wall and however Kyburn and Cersei think they're controlling Gregor. At some point, that's going to break and the consequences are probably going to be quite horrific. George has set up that Gregor is basically the walking embodiment of horrible things in the story. Uh, Artist Aaron, do you think he has no head? No, I do think he has a head. I think uh, it is Gregor Clegane's head and that they sent a fake head down to Dorne. Lady Catherine, the fake queen. I feel like a lot of this got away from George. I think we're all reading too much into it. Robert Strong may or may not be alive. I don't think he's actually undead. Well, they say that he doesn't eat or drink and he doesn't sleep and that he never takes off his armor and he doesn't go to the bathroom. So that to me sounds like a white. I don't think that's reading too far into it, but in terms of whatever the method is for how Kyburn did it, I don't think there's too much value to be from like trying to figure out what it is because I don't think there is one. It's just like I wanted Gregor to come back to life. So George wrote it. So he did. And somehow Kyburn knows how to do it. See here. Guilty Undertaker. Zombie attacks on the northeast and west. Zombie attacks every, everywhere. Zombies attacking from everywhere. Yeah. I do like the idea that Sam has the horn of winter and he's going to raise a bunch of the undead. I think that'd be pretty cool. Anime lover Nicole, do you think that the mountain is going to kill Nymeria and Tyene? Yeah, probably. I think if you list characters in King's Landing who are still there, I think there's a pretty good chance if you say, will this character be killed by Sir Robert Strong? Give it a coin flip. It's probably going to happen. Cersei's going to be on a killing spree. She's out for revenge. She has essentially a video game character she can control to go kill them she's going to be doing it especially if things get more dire within king's landing like the closer Aegon's invasion gets the closer daenerys's invasion gets you can expect the chaos will be the kind of thing that robert strong will thrive on did i mention the red wedding oh radio westeros yeah they put out with history of westeros dance of the dragons part four they debuted it last night it was really good kyburn knows how to make more gregors why doesn't he says jasper he may have not have been lying about the fact that he wants to know how what Oberyn poisoned Gregor with because if a key part of how he made Robert Strong has to do with that poison and then whatever else he did to him then he may not be able to replicate it without whatever poison thing Oberyn made like it could be quite literally true that Ungregor is a dark miracle the only one of his kind and that Kyburn can't recreate him because he doesn't know how he did it that's also very much a possibility. The how isn't as important as the why. Yeah, that's true, Barris. Really. Let's see here. Oh, this is your first time live, Aaron? Oh, I'm glad you got to join us. These are a lot of fun. I swear I'm going to be talking about more like current A Song of Ice and Fire stuff in the future. Like I know I've been sort of on a tear talking about Fire and Blood and House of the Dragon, kind of preparing for when that show comes out. It's always good to have a uh, little veer and swerve a little bit i thought the others can only control those they themselves kill i don't think that's true i think they can raise anybody from the undead that they come across they may not be able to control other undead like it doesn't seem like they can control cold hand they probably can't claim somebody else's undead but i think they can turn any corpse into one cb norwood says needs to repurpose the wildfire guild for making zombies there you go wildfire powered zombies that's what he is they put wildfire in his veins actually wouldn't that be cool and at one point like Robert Strong will just explode in green flame. Heads splatting like melons. We signal that Gregor is nearby. That's true, Micah. Like, seriously, the fall of King's Landing, the next one, is going to be horrific. And Robert Strong is going to be there on the front line 
just he already did horrible, horrible things during the first fall of King's Landing. He's probably not going to do less than he's done before. Although uh, somebody further up, they made the comparison that maybe that'll be the fate of young Griff. Yeah, he's claiming to be the kid that Gregor supposedly splatted against the wall. So that's also a definite possibility that Cersei will use Robert Strong to take out young Griff. I think there's good reason to think that Daenerys will do it, but I would not be shocked if George decides Robert Strong is the better way to do it. Super chat here from Smith Crazy. Smith Crazy, $5. Thank you for the uh, super chat. Thank you for all the time and content. What do you think Cersei did with all the other Tyrion skulls? You know, the really grim answer for that is that if Kyburn has been actually performing like lobotomies or some version of it, really, if you look in the history of them, the way the procedure was invented was they would take cadavers and then they would essentially practice putting ice picks through the eye socket to try and make sure you hit the brain. So maybe uh, Kyburn has been using the fake Tyrion skulls as practice for Robert Strong or the, yeah, or there's a skull room. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. Lady Catherine, the fake queen. Joe, do you think King's Landing is going to go up in flames? And do you see the Westeros going back to being seven kingdoms? There's definitely the idea that King's Landing is going to erupt in Dragonfire or Wildfire. I've heard suggestions that Cersei's going to blow up King's Landing to essentially pull an Ares. The idea that she's going to echo his let she's going to say essentially the same line and be like, let them be queen or king overcooked me. I think that's on the table. I also think Danny's showing up with dragons and there's wildfire caches all over the place. So I think one way or another, we're going to see a really big fire within King's Landing. I don't think you bring three dragons into the narrative to not see them burn down a city, basically. I mean, even if you disagree with Daenerys's motivations from the show for why she did it, they are basic. Those are Chekhov's dragons. We've seen over and over and over again that uh, George used them in his history to burn down like Heron Hall, he burned down castle after castle in Dorne, the Field of Fire. They're going to be used. And King's Landing is basically a powder keg. Yeah, Chekhov's dragons. Oh, what was the other question? The other part of it. Do you see Westeros going back to being seven kingdoms? It depends who's ruling in the end. Well, Bran's going to be king in the end. Well, he let the North go free. I think we need more insight into where Bran is at the moment to, and how he gets to being king of the seven kingdoms to answer. He's definitely going to keep control of the other six. But the sort of the point of King Bran is that he's a a supernatural like God King sort of thing that he's going to take control and basically like never let go again, either from himself or through the weirwoods controlling him. So I think the rise of Bran as king is more a start of a new like a weirwood empire. It's going to be an expansion of royal power and not a lessening of it. Basically, that's kind of what I think. I don't know if he would let the North go like show branded with Sansa, but it may be in the end that Bran thinks it doesn't matter because he's going to control them anyway. The Sorcerer King, so the rules will not apply to his choices. Wildfire, zombie grenades. Yeah, there we go. Danny in the show was an uns was a mentally unstable serial killer. Uh, no, she knew what she was doing. She did it. She explained why. It was just that people didn't like the reason. She was using it as Hall, where she was going to use that as a dramatic example to make sure nobody else resisted her again. That was her explanation which is a targaryen thing they like using dramatic examples of violence to make sure they don't have to fight the future wars unfortunately it almost never worked like aegon roasted harrenhal and then the field of fire happened and then he continued to burn dorne so it's a bad plan but it's definitely one that the uh, dragon lords are used to it's pretty much straight out of their playbook also the freehold did that shit all the time 
they would absolutely show up and burn down cities in order to try and use that as a shock and awe sort of thing. Let's see here. Oh yeah, there's also grayscale. John Connington brought grayscale with him. Yeah, we'll see how that one goes. There's too many things converging. I think and George is such a creative writer that I have a hard time predicting King's Landing. I doubt anybody has it right because actually something I've been learning from uh, reading Dying of the Light is even if you know his patterns and what you think is going to happen, he has such a creative mind that it is extraordinarily hard to pinpoint exactly what he's going to do. I think that's about it, though. Thank you guys for showing up. Thanks for all the super chats. I'm going to go ahead and set Dying of the Light Chapter 4 to public. So I'm going to drop this link in the chat. Any of my patrons on the $5 and up level, you guys can go listen to it right now. Two hours of me and Maester Mary talking about Chapter 4 of Dying of the Light. Yeah, I got that in the chat. It's also down in the description. This And also when I upload this elsewhere. So thanks to Smith the Crazy, Aaron Sopachi, Sopaki, Kraken Queen, Signe A, Sanrixian, Michael James, Danny McKay, all the new patrons. So I'm glad we got to hang out and talk about Robert Strong and Clegane Bowl and a surprising amount of things to look forward to with uh, good old Robert Strong in the Winds of Winter. I'll see you guys all next week and you have a good Saturday. 